the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on 860-WGUL, the goal. We are an AM station in the Tampa Bay area, but you can reach me worldwide at 860-WGUL.com. That's 860-WGUL.com. By the way, we are the answer. So if you have a question, call us and we'll give you the answer. We are at 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. And we're an iHeart station. Oh boy. So if you're on your smartphone wandering around, you can tune me in, baby, and listen to me every Sunday from 9 to 10 a.m. We also have my, uh, Shows saved on the website. You can go to the website. That's 860-WGUL.com. And if you will go to the Sunday schedule and scroll down, you'll see me, and there are some links to my past shows. Well, I got accosted by all the doctors in the lunchroom. Hey, Handelman, are you going to talk about terrorism this week on your show? Well, I wasn't, but I guess I am now. I've been pressed into service on behalf of all the doctors in the lunchroom at St. Pete Gen. And... I looked at this, and I want to keep it in perspective. I think that we need to do a number of things, and I'll go into that later. But let's talk about terrorism, the roots of it. When did it start? What was the first recorded terrorist group or event? Well, believe it or not, it was the Jewish side of the family. The zealots in the Judea province in the first century A.D. were killing collaborators with the Roman rulers. These were mostly the high priest, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the wealthy elite. It was a class warfare, so to speak. And an offshoot of the zealots were called the Sakurai. These were the dagger men. And they also were against Jewish collaborators, temple priests, Sadducees, Herodians, wealthy elite of the Jewish community at that time. And they would go into crowds, according to Josephus, the great historian of that era. The, actually, he was a Jewish historian, but he was given Roman citizenship and honors by the uh, emperor because of the work he did in documenting the history of the Mediterranean at that time. And they would have these short daggers under their cloaks. They'd go into crowds, and they would stab people that they didn't like or they considered the wealthy elite. And then they'd put it back under their cloak, and they would disappear 
and the crowd would go crazy and everybody was scared to death and it would disperse. And so this broke up festivals because they had festivals. This broke up concerts because they had concerts. Broke up plays because they had plays just like we do. And so the roots of this go back thousands of years. This is nothing new. How we approach it, I think, is where we can have some novelty and how we can bring these people back into, how shall I say, the sane and sensible world citizenship group or neighbors or whatever we want to call it. You know, the president was in Kuala Lumpur over the weekend. He was speaking at the ASEAN summit in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Kuala Lumpur is the capital of Malaysia. And for those of you who forgot your geography, the Malay Peninsula is in Southeast Asia, and it is next to the countries that we were involved in in the 60s and 70s, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, they're close to that, and Indonesia, which is the island nation, and Malaysia actually has some islands in their, in their union, and they also have part of one island that is also part of Indonesia. This is a Muslim country, although they are polyglot and they have a large percentage of Christians and Hindus and Buddhist, their constitution is based on Islam, so they are not a secular state. The president is calling for calm. Don't be afraid. I couldn't agree more with the man, and I'll go into the statistics in a little bit. Does that mean that we should not prepare? Of course not. Does it mean that we should not address this, look at it, study it, figure out how to stop it, both militarily and philosophically, uh, psychologically, sociologically? Of course not. We've got to do all those things, and it has to be a concerted effort with all of our allies and even get together with some of our not-so-close allies, like Russia, at least in terms of cooperating on terrorism. Terrorism has struck almost every major country in the world. It's not new. It's been around a long time. I don't think that President Obama is being robust enough in his efforts to mount a military counteroffensive against at least one of the groups, ISIS, in the Iraq-Syria corridor there, south of Turkey. I also think that, as I said a few weeks ago, that we need to hang with the Turks. I know that the Kurds have been our, our pet, so to speak, our, our child that we were going to defend because of the horrors that they have experienced from the Iraqis, Saddam Hussein, and from the Turks. But they have their own terror groups. So we're going to have to make some concessions to the legitimate governments that are trying to fight ISIS and fight other wrongs and other terrorists in that region. We need to stick close, and I don't think anybody can get much closer than Turkey. They're sitting right on top of the whole mess. I think we need a NATO response. I agree with the French president. Why? It's not that we can't defeat them, either as a nation or a small group of nations. We don't need all of NATO's resources 
to defeat these people, but we do need to let the Russians know that we can handle this without their intervention in that area. They'll make a mess, and they won't be able to pull together a coalition because of their past history. So we need to keep them out. And the best way to do that is to make a stand as a united front, as NATO. And Turkey is associated with NATO. So let's rethink all of this. Let's rethink what we're doing. Does that mean we stop defending the Kurds? No, I think that we have a duty to defend these people. Actually, I think we have a duty to go back in and stay. Whether or not we went in the first time is irrelevant. Now, whether it was right or wrong is irrelevant whether or not we went into Iraq in, in the early 2000s. The wrong was once you went in there, you left. We'd left billions of dollars worth of equipment, a big Army, Navy base, military base in southern Iraq near Basra. We pulled out troops who could have been a deterrent to what's going on now. I think we had the idea that the world is a lot like us, and it is not. It is not. We have a responsibility if we're going to take a parenting role in countries like Iraq and Syria to stay there and make sure that the child reaches maturity without killing itself. You say that's a big commitment. Well, that's the decision we have to make. Do we want to commit the resources, the money, the manpower it would take to stabilize this region. A lot of people say no now. I don't know. Will it continue to be a problem? Of course. You've got a few hundred million people in that area with a lot of natural resources. The ability to make atomic bombs, as we've seen with the Iranians. By the way, we started their atomic program in the 1950s. And at the conference that Obama spoke at, the ASEAN summit, which is a Southeastern Asia economic union, the Malaysian Prime Minister Razak denounced the acts of terrorism, saying the perpetrators should be dealt with the, with the full force of the law. And international law would call in to service the countries that are traditionally responsible for enforcing those laws. Now, while affirming his government's help and support against the new evil that he feels blasphemes Islam, Najib called for greater vigilance against a threat that is very real in our region. Speaking about his own region, because they've had problems. Remember the bombings in Bali? Remember the terrorist acts in the Philippines? There have been terrorist acts in almost every major country in the world. And recently, one group beheaded one of their countrymen, a gentleman named Bernard Fenn, T-H-E-N, and left the head of the man that they beheaded at the doorstep of where this conference was taking place. It's barbaric, but it's the reality of what we have to deal with at this point in time in our history. The attacks in Paris, Beirut, the Sinai, the Philippines, Mali, they've all cast a shadow over us, according to the Prime Minister. 
despite momentous steps that have been initiated by the regional block, there, he says there cannot be a person on this hall, in this hall, who has not been shocked and shaken by the sickening disregard for human life and devastation visited on the families and communities of the victims. The perpetrators, in his estimation, are cowardly and barbaric, and they don't represent any organized religious creed or race that it's terrorism for the sake of terrorism. They're terrorists, he says, and they should be confronted as such with the full force of the law. Military might not be enough, according to the Prime Minister. New solutions against extremism and terrorism are needed. One I would suggest is to dismantle your Constitution, Mr. Prime Minister, and make it a secular state. Make the biggest statement you can make. Separate religion from government. And that's a hard concept for most people in the world because it's been so intertwined for so long. We grew up with the concept of, yes, I can believe in God, or no, I don't have to. I can pray to Jesus or not pray, or I can go to temple or not go to temple. I can choose my religion or no religion. But when I go into the polling booth and close that curtain, I'm alone. No God, no spiritual being is making that decision for me. That's my decision, and I have to live with the consequences of it. So the new solution that I would say to you, Mr. Prime Minister, is make your country, make Malaysia, a secular government, a secular state. That doesn't mean that you're going to have to give up Islam. If that's your belief, that's what you're raised with, that's what you're comfortable with, and it has helped you achieve what you wanted to achieve for you and your people, then by all means, keep going. Malaysia's been a real success story, a very big economic success story. These people have pulled themselves out of being a colonial feeder of raw materials to one of the most productive countries in the world per capita, and they're growing and growing, and they're doing a great job. And all you have to do is look at Kuala Lumpur and see the Twin Towers there. Oh, my gosh, they're huge. I think they're the biggest structures in the world now, and it's, it's quite amazing to see. So what do we do? Saying military might is not enough to defeat those bent on causing war, death, and despair. It's the ideology propagated by these extremists, according to the prime minister, that is the cause of the sadistic violence. We must not lose sight of the fact that the ideology itself must be exposed as the lie that it is and vanquished. For it is not Islam. It cannot be, according to his understanding of Islam. And he's entitled to that. The Prime Minister said moderation, moderation is crucial to confronting religious extremism, concept that is deeply embedded in the economic group's way, one which is close to our hearts in Malaysia, where our unique mixture of faiths and ethnicities could have divided us, but instead our diversity has strengthened us. Well, you don't have the same privileges if you're not Muslim in Malaysia, be that as it may, it is a tolerant country, and it does allow people to practice Christianity or Buddhism or Hinduism. So what do we do militarily? 
well, we have to mount a response. Let's not do it by ourselves. Now that France and Belgium and a lot of the other EU countries are experiencing the same traumas that we have been, let's go to them and NATO and let's say, let's do it, guys. We need to put this to rest. We need to clean this region out. Not to go in and defeat one sect and leave. But we go in, we clean house, and we stay. And we keep 50 to 100,000 troops in the region. We've already got the infrastructure at the base in Basra. We'll just dust off some of the lamps, flush the plumbing out, and let's put it back to use. There's no reason for us to anguish over this. We can do this less expensively with our allies. But I think we need to make it clear to everybody that this is a long-term commitment, not a three or four or five or ten-year war. This is a hundred years that we're going to have to stay in this area to help these people achieve some kind of sense of self-worth, uh, ability to integrate into the world community, to tolerate religions other than Shia or Sunni Islam. And we need to stop these wealthy families in Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Muslim world from contributing to these terrorists. We need to sit heavily on the Saud family in Saudi Arabia and tell them, look, you've got to do something. Of course, it's not easy because the Wahhabi sect in Saudi Arabia was the religious bone that was thrown to the mullahs and the imams to make sure that the Saud family had control of the peninsula. It's still a somewhat feudal society, obviously. And it's only in the past few years that Sauds have started traveling abroad other than the very wealthy. I've met a kid, in, a kid, I would say a young man, he was a Ph.D. in, in Milan, Italy, from Saudi Arabia, and we talked and exchanged ideas. He was smoking a cigarette, and he said, you're going to kill yourself with that glass of wine. <laughs> you know, I said, I'm a doctor, I'm a cardiologist, for God's sakes. The cigarette's what's going to kill you, my friend. He didn't believe me. I said, well, give me your email address. I'll send you all the literature. He didn't trust that. But he did say that he'd been to Miami, and he said he thought the Americans were genuinely friendly and accepting, and he did not feel that way about the Sauds. He said, they'll be nice to your face, but when you turn your back, watch out. So I think that we have to pull these people out of this feudal state that they have lived in for millennia and help them become citizens of the world. And that's not an easy task to do. And you're not going to do it by just going in militarily and destroying the infrastructure and then saying, okay, we're leaving. You guys work it out. Give us a call if you need us. And it doesn't matter if they say we don't want you here. This isn't choice. They don't have that ability to make that call. That's our call. We'll decide when it's time to leave. We'll decide when it's time to pull out of Japan and Germany. We'll decide when we feel they have been rehabilitated. So that's my, uh, my soapbox on this. And I, I read a really neat art article, uh, interview with a guy named Scott Atran, A-T-R-A-N, anthropologist at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And he's also cooperating with and collaborating with the Central National Research and Scientific Institute in Paris. And he wanted to know, what pulled these people, these young men, 
to become terrorists, to become Islamic jihadists. And so he has been spending a good part of his academic career trying to figure this out and to talk to people. Not an easy task. He interviewed would-be and convicted terrorists about their extreme commitment to their organizations and ideals. And he was interviewed at the beginning of this year, and I believe in January of 2015, before the attack a few uh, last week on the, on the folks in Paris. And he spoke with Nature, which is a good magazine, about what he discovered. And the questions are, what sociologic and cultural factors are behind the Paris attacks? Unlike the U.S., according to Atron, where immigrants achieve average socioeconomic status, education, and upward mobility within a generation, the EU has multiple generations, three generations before these folks can break out of that mold. Depending on the country, they're much more likely to be poor. That's the North African, uh, Middle Eastern Muslims who have immigrated. And remember, France had a big empire that included a big swath of North Africa. And so those folks have, or in the past, had fairly free movement from Morocco and Tunisia and some of the other countries. In France, about 7.5% of the population is Muslim, and they make up 60 to 75% of the prison population. They're more likely to be poor, less educated, more violent. Reminds you of anything here at home? Black American youth? It's a disproportionate percentage of people in prison that are black in the United States. You say, well, you know, they've had that opportunity to grow and change. And change comes slowly for a lot of things. Some things are quick, but changing cultures, changing morals and values, getting people to understand the necessity of stimulating infants, of taking proper care of them, so the brain develops, so that they can go to school and compete with the other kids. All these things take time, money, resources. But the difference, in, at least in France and Belgium, is that it's an ideology, the jihadism, that appeals to these young people because they've heard the Koran, they know it. It's something that's very attractive, more than one might think. In France, a poll showed that 27% of young French people, not just Muslims, between 18 and 24, had a favorable attitude towards the Islamic State. Now, that's a big chunk of kids. And you have to stop and say to yourself, well, would I have embraced that when I was 18 years old? I don't know about you, but I was pretty, uh, I was pretty extreme. I was, I was ready for revolution. I mean, I didn't know what I was doing any more than these guys know what they're doing other than setting themselves up to be slaughtered and killed when they have enough of the world angry at them. But let's face it, these are poor, undereducated, understimulated, overly ideologues, who drift into these extremist movements 
like young boys will do, into a fight. The more organized way to do it is to play a sport. And they form these groups, and they're funded indirectly and inspired by the Al-Qaeda type of people. Jihad is only, it's the only systemic cultural ideology that's effective and that's growing, that's attractive, that's glorious, that basically says to these young people, look, you're on the outs, nobody cares about you. But look what we can do. We can change the world. And of course, they're attracted to this. And they manage to capture the entire world's attention, as in the case of the Paris attacks last week. For weeks, the whole world's talking about this now. An 18-year-old kid who's accomplished very little in his life, is undereducated, can sit back and say, look what I did. You know, isn't that cool? And this is very attractive to young, young men. They've mobilized all of French society. They've got NATO working. They've got the Prime Minister of Malaysia half a world away talking about it. They've got Obama spending a lot of time on it. That's a pretty good cost-benefit ratio for a few guns and a few bullets, a few homemade bombs. Not much invested, but a lot of return. So what are we going to do? Well, first, we have to stop being afraid. I agree with the president on that. Your odds of dying in a terrorist attack are still far, far lower than dying from just about anything else, including tripping over your furniture at home. For Americans, in the last five years, the odds of one of us being killed in a terrorist attack have been about 1 in 20 million. 1 in 20 million. It's about 1 in 5 million that you'll be struck by lightning in Florida. That includes both domestic and overseas attacks. And actually, all terrorist deaths have been going down since the 1970s. We had 450 to 500 deaths from terrorism against Americans in and out of the United States in the 1970s. And that dropped by 74, 75 to 100. And then by 85, 86 to 50. And by 2011, a couple. We're not in a lot of danger. The odds of us being killed by a terrorist are very small. Very, very small. Now, the hazard ratio is something different. Odds are everybody. So if we have 320 million people and 32 people get killed, then the odds ratios are 0 .00. Um, the odds are 0 .001 that you're going to be killed, or 0 .0001. Very small. The hazard ratio, now that changes the game. If you fly you're at greater hazard for being killed by terrorists. Still very small. Now, if you're an aid worker in Mali and you're an American, like this woman who was killed, your hazard went through the roof. Your hazard ratio is through the roof. You probably have a one in two chance of being killed by a terrorist. Same way with Jane Fossey, who worked with the great apes 
and she was killed by poachers. The hazard ratio is probably 100% for her because I think she was the only person doing it. So big difference. So look, if you're not going to go to a nightclub where there are a lot of kids and it's an easy target for terrorists, the chances of you being killed at that nightclub are zero. If you're not going to fly across Ukraine when the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting each other and shooting rockets at any planes that come through, the odds that you'll be killed are zero. You're not going to be killed if you don't go there, if you don't take that flight. Does that mean that we stop doing what we do? Well, I think a lot of us have already changed our lives, and not for worse, really. I mean, we've just realigned what we do, what we think. We're a little bit more observant and vigilant. We look for venues that are safer. We feel better when there are people checking our bags at the football games and the ice hockey games. And as we get older, we're not interested in going to the nightclubs. That's for the younger people, the kids. And we caution our kids, look, if you're going to go somewhere, make sure it's somewhere that you know is safe, that they have security, they got people at the door. They just use some common sense. So the odds are infinitesimally small that we're going to die from a terrorist bullet or a terrorist bomb. Does that mean it can't happen in the United States? Of course not. How many people would they kill? Well, 9-11 was a big, a big bunch. That was over 2,000. And, of course, Tim McVeigh, if you consider him a terrorist, when he blew up the building in Oklahoma, killed almost 200 people, the chance does exist. We just have to be sensible. We have to stop and think about what we're doing. We have to stop and think about where we're going. We have to stop and think about how we're going to prepare ourselves and what response we expect our, from our government. Of course we expect a response from our government. We are a nation of reluctant warriors, and we always have been. We don't want to fight, but if you keep poking us, we're going to come over there and whack you. And we expect our president to be the same way. And there are people who say, but I'm completely nonviolent. I respect that. But we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for violence. We would not be here as a species. We would not be here as a country. I certainly as half would not be here. So, as much as we all dislike war, as much as it's distasteful and painful and hurts, there are times when we've got to stand up and fight. And we've got to take our lumps, but we've got to keep swinging. So, that'll give you something to think about for a few minutes. And I want to know, and I'll give somebody one of our $25 gift cards. I want to know what the odds are of being killed in a car accident in the United States. What are the odds that we'll be killed in a car accident? The, the hazard ratio is fairly high because almost, or, or is fairly evenly distributed because almost all of us travel in a car at some point in time <clears throat> each year. So whoever has that answer for me when I get back from the break, I'll give you my little, my little gift card from my wife's favorite restaurant in the area, and we'll take yourself out there and get yourself something to eat, have some pasta. And this is Dr. Bill. I'll be right back.
With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The brother of a man wanted in connection with the Paris attacks is urging him to surrender. Mohamed Abed Slam tells Belgian broadcasters they would rather see his brother in prison than in the cemetery. Meanwhile, the streets of Brussels are largely empty, with the city under Belgium's highest terrorist threat alert level for a second day. Subways and underground trams remain closed. President Obama vows the fight against ISIS will not let up and that the world won't accept attacks on civilians in Paris and elsewhere as the new normal. He's just wrapped up a nine-day trip to Turkey and Asia and is coming home now to Washington. And Republican David Vitter says he's not going to run again for the U.S. Senate next year after losing the election for Louisiana governor yesterday to Democrat John Bell Edwards in an upset. Vitter made the announcement during an appearance to campaign supporters in New Orleans. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for West Coast Radiology. Our good friends at West Coast Radiology offer convenient and comprehensive x-ray diagnostics, including open MRI, CT scan, CT PET mammography, and ultrasound. With state-of-the-art equipment and four convenient locations, you're assured of friendly, comprehensive care. Most insurance is accepted and competitive self-pay rates, plus Saturday appointments. Call West Coast Radiology at 727-771-2799. That's 727-771-2795. Hi folks, Alan Thicke here. You know, some things in life are just too serious to take chances on, and owing money to the IRS is definitely one of those. The IRS has the power to garnish your paycheck, they can levy your bank account, even take your home or business. Seriously. Thankfully, with one simple call, you can start solving your tax debt once and for all. Optima Tax Relief is the leading tax resolution firm in the nation. They have over 250 professionals, they have an A rating with the Better Business Bureau, and the trust of thousands of satisfied clients. Optima's attorneys can immediately protect you from aggressive collections because they are experts in the Fresh Start Initiative. That's a special IRS debt forgiveness program that could save you thousands. Don't wait till it's too late. Get serious. Call Optima now for your free consultation. Call 800-711-5743. 800-711-5743. Some restrictions apply. For complete details, please visit OptimaTaxRelief.com. Joe, technician from SafeLight Auto Glass. My last customer was a busy mom with lots to do until she noticed a big crack in her windshield. She didn't want to drive with her baby in that car, so she scheduled online at SafeLight.com. No one makes replacing a windshield easier. Plus, she loved how SafeLight emails a photo of the technician so she knew who was coming to her house and how soon. Call 1-800-800-2727 or go to SafeLight.com. SafeLight Repair, SafeLight Replace. Rather cloudy with a couple of showers. Today's high, 75. Partly cloudy but cooler tonight, low 52. Sunshine, cool tomorrow, high 69. Clear to partly cloudy tomorrow night, low 51. Sunshine on Tuesday, high 73. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Jason Stevens for AM860, The Answer.
Captain Bill, your Radio MD, playing a little bit of the melody, cruising, wonderful rendition done by Huey Lewis and Gwyneth Paltrow. I think that was in a movie back in the 80s or 90s, I can't remember. I did not realize how talented she was. Oh my gosh, the girl can sing, act, probably intelligent, probably worth billions. So I'm glad everybody's going my way, as they say in the cruising song. So I want to know, for that $25 gift certificate, what are the odds of dying in a car wreck in the United States? I'm at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. So I was talking before the break about the uh, anthropologist, Atron, who is doing and has been doing research into the Islamic fundamentalists and terrorism and the uh, jihadist. And he has a different view than, than what we have and what we think. One of the questions that was asked is, is this population ready-made for Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, to recruit from? And he says it's not about recruitment, it's about self-seekers. Islamic State and Al-Qaeda don't directly order commando operations. Basically, they say, hey, guys, here are ideas. Do it yourself. Here's the way to make a pressure cooker bomb and likely targets that will terrorize the most people. Here are the things we hate. Go out and do it. So it's not an act of recruitment by Al-Qaeda or ISIS. It's disaffected, disenchanted, Young people idolizing and admiring what the Islamic terrorists are doing and doing it on their own with minimal guidance. You can go on the Internet and get a lot of the stuff. Do the terrorists that he studied seem to have fit this pattern? He talked to people in the neighborhoods where the 9-11 pilots came from, their families. And the family said they didn't even know what the hell was going on or what they were doing. These were a bunch of guys who worked at a technical university, and they sort of hooked up there. Went to Voss together, got an apartment together, wanted to do something really big and grand together. So they dragged in mattresses. They watched extremist videos. The neighbors said that the place stunk because they never came out. And none of this was, was really real carefully planned. It had backing, yes. It had a loose network of people, as we know. But attacks that we remember, ones at work, they pick carefully planned targets. That's the ticket. Attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, of course, just shook us to the core. I mean, it was a wake-up call, splash of cold water in our face. And in 2004 in Madrid, when the train bombings occurred and 191 people were killed, the Spaniards voted in a different government, changed their whole approach, non-confrontational. Hey, Will from Sebring's back. Will, what you got for me, bud? Well, it's kind of political. And thanks for taking my call. It's good to hear from you. Um, you get, we got the president keeps saying all the horrible things we did, you know, during our inquisitions and the crusades. But, but that we went through a reformation. That was, I think, the last time we did anything real brutal was probably seven hundred years ago. 
I don't, I don't know. Um, but the president keeps bringing up how uh, the past, but there's there's still uh, there's still stampeding around the world, beheading people and shooting innocent folks. And I don't remember the last time a a Christian did anything like that. Well, you know, I had one uh, Muslim friend, doctor, say, "Well, what about Tim McVeigh?" Well, Tim McVeigh wasn't even a Christian; he was an atheist. He was an atheist, and he was just—he was just, uh, I guess, an anarchist too. And I don't—I don't know. He wasn't—it yeah, wasn't religious. He, that actually, was, he was protesting uh, Second Amendment rights because the Clintons had gone into Waco. That's right. On specifically on the or because of the fact that they felt that Koresh and his gang had illegal automatic weapons, and the same thing at Ruby Ridge. It ended up that, of course, they killed all the people in the house inadvertently. Uh, but, I mean, you know, this is the government, so you, you can't expect things to go well. You know, if you want to build the prettiest bridge in the world, don't get the Army Corps of Engineers. That's not no, what they do. You know, so. no, they, build, they, they swap something together that's functional for a, yeah, for a period of time. For the duration of the war or something. Or, yeah. Yeah. They want to get to the other side of the river, and once they're there... If they don't need it, who cares? That's pretty much it. But um, so I think you remember that. Remember that that, that big chemical spill. I know it's kind of off topic, but um, or if that was anybody else over there in that that mine that spilled all them chemicals, it would wouldn't that have been a big deal to anybody else other than the EPA? Remember that 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 chemical spill up from that mine shaft that went into the, the, the all those rivers and stuff. Vaguely, um, there have been a number of spills, but. Uh, yeah, but it was the EPA that, that did it when they're in their sneaking around. Was that the one that occurred a couple of months ago? Yeah, that would be the one, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's uh, it's a, a strange world, and the government really, we have to... The way we say not as we do, is, is that, is that, would that be the proper... Yeah, I think, and we have to rein them in, you know. We, that's the whole purpose of participatory democracy. They got to be reined in. I mean, you know, as well intended as some of these people are, some are not so well intended in government, but as well intended as they are, they still have to be reined in. They still need to hear what we think, what we want done, and if they have an argument against it, then make a rational argument and 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 talk to us as equals, because that's what we are. We're their equals, whether they like it or not. Is President Clinton found out when he committed perjury, he lost his law license like any lawyer would. So, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta have respect, especially in a democracy for the people that you're representing. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, th well, thanks for taking my call. It's always good. To, it's always good to hear you show. You always got a smart topic. I think you might be a genius. I don't know about that, but, uh, I do spend a lot of time reading. So I think I'm hyper. Yeah, good. Thanks, thanks for doing that for us, so you could uh, so you could spread your knowledge to the the rest of us. Uh, Thank you for dumber, your dumber dumberlings. Well, I appreciate your compliment. Thank you, buddy, and good to hear from you. Yeah, well, let good me, to hear from you too. Bye bye. Bye bye. Let me get back to this. Uh, you know, we have these this idea that these are carefully planned commando raids, and they're not. You know, I was sitting in the lunchroom in the late 1990s at the hospital, and the doctors were all wringing their hands. Oh, that was, this was after the first World Trade Center situation where they tried to blow it up from in the basement in the parking garage. And 
they were saying that they were afraid that the terrorists would get a hold of a nuclear weapon and unleash it on the United States. I said, you guys, you're, you're not thinking. You don't go high-tech, you go low-tech. I said, one of the best, biggest bombs that you can get your hands on is a commercial jetliner that's just been fueled. And you fly that into the World Trade Center, and you've got one hell of an explosion. Well, a few years later, this came to pass. These people are not going to go high-tech. It's just not, you know, the cost-benefit ratio just isn't there. These are not wealthy kids in the suburbs of Paris in the north end of town living in $500,000 homes. These are, these are the kids in the barrios. These are the kids in the, in the downtrodden neighborhoods, in the poor neighborhoods. They ain't got much. And they ain't got much to work with, so they're going to go low-tech. takes planning. It doesn't take a whole lot of intelligence, but you have to have some. And so one of the questions that the interviewer asked Antrim, the social worker or the uh, anthropologist who was doing social anthropology investigating the jihadists, he said, can anything be done to predict extremist attacks? And... Antron said, well, people want to be able to predict, to have surety. It wouldn't help if they knew about every foiled plot in terms of being able to predict it. The fact is, anybody at any time, anywhere can start to make his own network of terrorists with his friends. It's like lava in a volcano when the magma erupts. We don't know which pocket will explode first. But what we do know is that there's a lot of pressure underneath this that's keeping things stirred up. So we not only have to confront this militarily, we're going to have to confront this economically, sociologically. We're going to have to go in and essentially remake our societies in the Western world to make sure that everybody feels like they're participating. Everybody has a piece of the pie, even if it's a little piece. Of course, you've got to work to get that. I mean, you can't just sit on your butt and do nothing. You know, 7 to 14% of the Muslims worldwide supported al-Qaeda strike against us. If the same applies to the Islamic State, and there's over a billion Muslims in the world, this is over 100 million people. Now, are all those people going to fight? No. But if you could get 1% to join your army, that's a million-man army. Of course, there's all the problems that come with big armies. How are you going to supply them? How are you going to feed them? How are you going to treat their wounds? How are you going to treat their medical problems? How are you going to move them? You know, we don't think about, on a day-to-day -day basis, the logistics of putting a 500,000-man army on the Arabian Peninsula to take down Saddam Hussein. Humongous, humongous undertaking. You know, I'm always amazed at Attila, the Hun, how he moved 250,000 men across Europe at that time, 5th, 6th. 4th, 5th, 6th century, forget exactly which one, fed them, housed them, kept their weapons sharp, made new shields, took care of the horses. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big job. You know, in World War II, for one soldier in the trenches fighting for the Americans, there were two in reserve who were helping to supply maintain, feed, move, rearm that one guy. Most of what the Army does 
is supply, logistics, travel. So even if you get a million-man army, how are you going to feed it? How are you going to move it? And I think these are real questions that are going to slow this down, and we can intervene at that level. Let's cut them off. Don't let them get weapons. Go to these dictators in the Middle East who are letting these guys out of prison and telling them to go attack the Turks or the Americans or the Iraqi soldiers or whoever. Let's get these guys and stop them before they let them out of prison. Let's get these dictators, grab them by the ear, give them a good ass-whacking, and tell them they can't do that. These are not adults, not in the population of the nations of the world. These are not adults yet. They don't know how to act and behave within our civilized, or what we consider our civilized way of entertaining and communicating. And, you know, I, I, it's, it's, it's not paternalistic to say that they're not ready. I mean, it's just the facts. Now, if we're going to go in, and I'm, I'm not going to say whether I think we should or should not, but if we go in, we cannot leave. We cannot leave. We have to make that commitment. But, so before we go and make that commitment, we all have to talk and decide, do we want to do that? I mean, we're going to have to sacrifice. We're already in debt. We're going to have to sacrifice. And that sacrifice may cost us a vacation. May cost us a new car next year. I'm happy with my 20-year-old truck, but some people feel that a new car gives them something more than what they had before. It's a measure of their success, of how well they've done at their job. It's a reward for doing well, as well as a utilitarian vehicle. So we got a lot of work to do. And we also ask, have to ask ourselves, who is actually willing to fight and die from this 100 million Muslims who are sympathizing with ISIS and al-Qaeda? There's a real problem of specificity according to this Anthropologists, even if people buy into the ideology and the values, it's far from a sufficient condition to motivate them to leave Malaysia or Indonesia or the Philippines, travel halfway around the world, and join these guys if you can actually get in to join them. Now, in the case of the Charlie Hebdo attacks last year in Paris, the, news, the uh, magazine that was attacked, the Kouachi brothers committed this. And their greatest bonding experience didn't come from being in a mosque, didn't come from Islamic meditational group meetings, didn't come from tea parties, came from being in prison. One of the greatest bonding experience, experiences for these guys, for terrorists, is to be in prison together, to form gangs in the prison, to make allegiances to one another, to note the racial, philosophical, religious differences between the peoples in and out of the prison. But it doesn't have to be prison. It could be a soccer game. It could be a school like the technical school where the 9-11 pilot bombers were all working and studying together. 
It could be whitewater rafting. It could be a picnic or a family get-together. You and your cousin walk around the house and discuss, dang, dude, we need to do something. You know, we need to make an impact on the world. We need to make the world see us and notice us and who we are and what we believe in. So if you want to find out who's going to fight and die and you want to break up particular terrorist cells, find out where they're in prison. Find out what they're eating. Find out how they dress. Where do they work? Where do they go to school? Where do they play? Plots never occur in mosques. You have to be quiet in the mosque. That doesn't mean that the imam isn't preaching something radical. Could very well be, and that has to be stopped. But most of these plots are not centered around the mosque or religious-related activities, according to this gentleman. And why aren't more people doing this kind of anthropological field work? Well, they can't. There's not a large enough sample. The insights come from surveys. You have to do in-field, in-depth field interviews and tightly controlled experiments. And if you really want a scientific study with jihadists, you have to convince them to put down their guns and talk to you, not to talk to one another, but to answer your questions. Some, if asked, would give up their belief in God if offered a certain amount of money. But they know if they do, they'll be shot by their fellow jihadists. So you can't ask that question. It's not because it's dangerous. It's because human subjects reviewed at universities and especially through agencies like the U.S. Defense Department, won't let this kind of work be done. Not because it puts the researcher in danger, but because human subjects are, sub, are required to be treated ethically and there are criteria set up to defend the middle class students and to defend other people's rights of free speech. What are you going to do with these protocols when you're talking to jihadists? Get them to sign it saying, I appreciate the Defense Department's concern for me and that they have funded this work, but I waive my rights? That ain't going to happen. You're going to call the, the human subject secretary? You're going to call Hillary and get okays? This sounds ridiculous, but that's the way it is. That's the way it is not only in anthropology, sociology, medicine, and a lot of different pursuits now. We are so hamstrung. But we need the knowledge. I was getting close to the end of the show. Oh, my gosh, Chris, I didn't realize I had this much to say on the topic. Holy moly, I'm sweating, everybody. I hope you guys appreciate this. I'll put it together just for you. And don't forget about cruising. And little thanks for everything, buddy. And I will see you guys next week. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, and I'm out of here, baby. And how many dollars would you give for it? Here we go. Beautiful painting, oil on canvas, 100 over there, but it could 200. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.